Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of, what's it called, Stu? Lost in Science. That is the show. Uh, my name is Chris, and boy, howdy, do I have some science for you today. Do you? Uh, well, I do, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There's nothing unusual there. We have lots of science every week. At least half an hour's worth At every least week. half an hour's worth. This week, I am speaking to paleontologist Hazel Richards, who has recently published a paper about some Ice Age marsupial megafauna. These are things that lived in the, on the Australian continent thousands of years ago, uh, all extinct now, but these were like large marsupials that are kind of related to some things today, but entirely different. And the ones that she's talking about are palachestids, so they're a particularly weird kind that have strange properties that she is trying to determine, and they kind of are stranger than you would expect. So these are those giant, like, giant wombat things and that sort of stuff? Well, you're thinking of the Diprotodon. That's yeah. the most famous one. It's the yeah, Diprotodon, yeah. which is kind of the, the Volkswagen-sized wombat that yeah. people talk about. Yeah, this is... this is. Um, it also related to wombats and koalas, but it is entirely different. It's a different um, branch of the different marsupial branch, tree. Different and it has some weird anatomical features that are... sounds like we are trying to... Just trying to scratch the surface of what they do. Wow. Yeah, or did. Yes. Yeah, all right. How well, about you, Stu? Um, so, okay, uh, you know I love a bit of sci-fi in my science. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but, you know, and I'm always, I'm, I'm amazed that we live in a time where a lot of sci-fi sort of tropes are actually coming to fruition. I don't know, did you see Elon Musk's Starship the other day? No. Oh, he's he's actually unveiled, you know, he's he's got a prototype of his Is it Starship. sci-fi? It just looks like a big rocket like you would draw when you're a kid. That's basically what it what it is. God. It's like you drew it on a napkin and said, Can you build me that? And they went, Okay, Mr. Musk and went off and built it. Um so today I'm not talking about Elon Musk's trip to space, uh, or or intentions of space. I'm actually talking about cyborgs. Right. And the the enhancement of humans to uh using technology to help them be um, you know more capable of doing things, and there's actually a, a patient in France who has been able to walk for the first time since he had an accident, which severed his spinal cord. Great, and he's using technology to actually be able to walk again. So I'll tell you a bit more detail about how he did that, and it's pretty amazing stuff, really. Does it only cost six million dollars? It probably cost a bit more than six million dollars, to be honest. So he's, and you know, it'd be in francs anyway. Yeah, okay. He's a six hundred million euros man. Yeah, euros now. Yeah, yeah, the six hundred million euro man. Right. We shall try and do the maths on that one and get back to it. All right, then. On with the show. Okay, you are listening to Lost in Science. Now, thousands of years ago, there were gigantic relatives of wombats and koalas roaming the Australian continent. And these were the marsupial megafauna. And if you think today's marsupials are a bit strange, well, you might not be able to handle how strange these extinct animals were. 
Paleontologist Hazel Richards from Monash University and Museum Victoria has recently published a paper about some of the strangest marsupial megafauna, the palacestids, and she's here to tell us all about them. Thanks for joining us, Hazel. Thanks for having me. All right. Now, to start with, can you tell us a bit what your research was about? Well, so I'm a paleontologist and also a functional anatomist. So this means that I'm interested in the structure and relationships between bones and muscles and what they can tell us about how animals work, what animals do, and how the animal's anatomy evolved. So in my PhD, I'm using these ideas to understand these Ice Age megafauna, palacestes, um, which were these huge four-legged herbivores that were pretty much unlike anything else alive today. Um, as you said, the closest living relatives are wombats, but calling a palacestid a wombat is kind of like calling a giraffe a sheep. So for an idea of what they were like, um, I highly suggest Googling marsupial tapir. Um, you'll get some really funny results. Okay. Um, they get called this because they had really similarly shaped skulls to tapirs. And what this means is that often when they're depicted in books and artwork, um, they're kind of shown as tapir-looking animals with a pouch and big claws. Right. And so the reason for this is because up until now, there hasn't been a formal scientific record of what their skeletons look like. Um, and so it's not very easy for paleontologists to recognise the fossils in the field or in collections, um, or for artists to really understand how they should draw the animals. So even though palacestids are actually super duper rare, I was able to identify more than 60 bones in the Australian Museum collections. And hopefully what I've been able to do is um, improve the accuracy of how these animals might be depicted in the future um, and also help how paleontologists will be thinking about them. Okay, so how do you go about figuring out what they look like? So to figure out what they look like, first of all, we have to find their fossils. Um, and so that means digging them up out of the ground, but also finding existing fossils in museum collections. Um, and so much of the work that was involved in this paper was finding the fossils in collections. It's kind of like hunting for buried treasure. And this is because those bones had never been published, so um, often they were sitting there, but they were just not recognised. So they don't have the right label or they're not in the right spot, and so they might not be listed in, in catalogues. So it's kind of like going to a library and looking for a book that has a blank cover and most of the pages missing and trying to think, where would a librarian put this book um, and kind of start from there. Okay. And then what do you do once you've got the bones? Do you, is it a matter then of comparing them to uh, modern day relatives and trying to figure out from that sort of thing how the bones fit together and what they would have looked like? Yeah, so you start off by comparing them to things we know they're related to. So that is like wombats and koalas, but also other extinct megafauna um, in sister families. But part of what makes it really tricky with palacestids is that nothing else was really like them. Um, so these are like large-bodied, big claws, herbivorous um, browsing, which means they didn't eat grass. They ate leaves and shrubs and things um, that aren't grass. And so even when you look in the fossil record and you're trying to find other animals that may have existed that looked a bit like palacestids, all of these guys are extinct as well. Um, and so that makes it tricky because we can't directly observe animals like this and how they behave in the wild and what they do with things like their, their claws and their limbs. But it also tells us an interesting story about maybe animals that were like this, that did these jobs in the environment, were predisposed to becoming extinct. So in South America, in Europe, in North America, these kinds of animals all disappeared around about the same time. Okay. So what are the, some of the, the features then? So you mentioned the claws. Yeah. Um, what were their claws like and what did they use them for? Well, so 
visualize this animal as something with a really muscular, front-loaded um, front half, very, very bulky, and a client kind of slenderer hind quarters. Like a bulldog kind of thing? Yeah, kind of like a really big bulldog. As far as size goes, um, the best analogy I could come up with this morning was like the biggest horse you've ever seen, except on stumpy wombat legs. Right. So how, give- how tall would they have been then? Yeah, something like a meter and a half or, okay. or so at the shoulder. Um, but from the limb bones that we were able to describe, we could estimate body mass. And we found that the largest Palakestes species would have weighed over 1,000 kilograms. Right. Okay. That's pretty heavy. So that's the mega, mega form. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're way up there. And so the claws were kind of pointed and sharp, um, very chunky, and bigger than even bigger than a, a grizzly bear. So... The biggest ones that I've seen across the work that I've done have been somewhere between the size of a credit card and a five dollar note. So these are these are big claws. These big claws, yeah, yeah. But they were they weren't carnivorous. They were no. These guys these guys have totally the wrong teeth to be animals that ate other animals. Um, and also you tend not to see carnivorous animals grow this large. Okay. To be this big, you have to be a herbivore. Right, but. Uh, I guess other claw uses claws might be to climb trees, but they sound like they might be a bit too big to climb trees. Yeah, I don't think I've never seen a tree big enough that would have taken a palakestid. They're way too large to climb trees. Right. But that doesn't mean they weren't engaging with trees. So we're still figuring out exactly what they were doing with their limbs. Um, I've still got a bit of a way to go in the PhD. But current thinking is something like using their huge muscled forelimbs to dig their claws into the side of a tree hold themselves upright and bring their faces up closer to the foliage that they wouldn't have been able to otherwise reach. Or maybe in these really large species, when you weigh over a ton and you dig your claws into the side of a tree, maybe you push that tree over and then you can shred it up with your huge claws and get at the yummy stuff on the inside. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science, where we're talking to paleontologist Hazel Richards about the bizarre features of the extinct marsupial megafauna, the palacastids. Um, so what other interesting um, interesting features do they have? I believe there's something weird about their front limbs. Is that right? Yeah. So not only were their front limbs really muscular and, and with these huge claws, but they had this totally bizarre anatomy whereby their elbow was fixed in a roughly 100 degree angle. So kind of like you were doing the robot. Um, oh. So stuck in this angle, it couldn't extend, it couldn't flex. And we don't see anatomy like this in any other mammal alive or extinct. And so part of the puzzle with this guy is figuring out how this sort of anatomy could have evolved in the first place, because surely it would be hard to walk around if your elbow's sort of bent all the time. And and what would have driven that evolution? What was it doing with this limb that meant that fixing it in this position was beneficial? And do you have any ideas? Well, what I was just describing about the way that it shredded up um, plants could be an option. What's been interesting is the the only other thing I've found that's come anywhere close to this kind of elbow anatomy is a giant extinct ground sloth from North America. So these were like nothing like living sloths. They didn't hang from trees. They were huge, lumbering, four-legged fairy things with big claws, very palakestid-like. And, yeah, they also had this weird flat elbow anatomy. So it's possible that these two guys were both performing a similar role in their respective environments. Okay. You also said that it has been called the marsupial tapir, and their tapirs have that kind of little trunk... Um, I don't know what, what for, but uh, have you been able to establish do they have a trunk like that? Well, so my research focuses on the stuff behind the head, what we call right, postcrania, okay. but other work that's come out of Museums Victoria in the last few years by Dr. Peter Trussler has looked very carefully at the skulls of these animals, and he found 
very little evidence to support the idea that these guys had a trunk, like a like a mobile little trunk for sniffing around in leaf litter and, and what tapirs do with their trunks. Okay. Not, not only that, but also as a marsupial, you're born really, really early um, as these tiny little jelly bean type things. And you need to latch onto your mother's teat um, really early on. And so the idea that a marsupial could evolve a face so strange is pretty unlikely considering that they have to do this very specialised thing with their face very early on in their development. Okay. So, all right, I want to understand a little bit about what kind of environment these creatures were living in. Now, so you said they were Ice Age. So when exactly talking? When, when did they actually live? Well, the earliest fossils from the lineage of the Palachestids, um go back about 25 million years. Um, the earliest fossils come from deposits in Queensland and the Northern Territory that have been dated around then in a time called the Oligocene. But what's interesting is that even those really early fossils already have this weird specialised face. And so this tells us that their lineage must go back even further than that. Um, but unfortunately, the Australian fossil record is really patchy before this time. So it's hard to find evidence um, of that. As far as the really large species, that Palachestes azil, um, we know that they existed for around about 2 million years and went extinct by about 50,000 years ago. Okay. So they would have overlapped with people being on the continent then, the first peoples? Yes, absolutely, by a few thousand years for sure. Um, Palachestids are really rare. Like you see them one in 100 compared to other big marsupials like big kangaroos and diprotodon. So we're yet to find any direct evidence of humans interacting with Palachestids, but um, I think it's safe to say that they were both walking around Australia at the same time. And I guess though... Having existed for so long, it'd be very difficult for you to say there was a set environment that they lived in because there would have been climatic changes over those thousands or millions of years. Yeah, absolutely. Climatic changes. And also you find them all across eastern Australia from way up in Queensland right the way down to Tasmania. So they were pretty versatile. Whatever they were doing, they were able to do it almost wherever they wanted. Okay. Now, you said you're doing a PhD. What's next in the research for you? Well, so now that we've got the fossils described, it's kind of the first step is putting them out there in the literature. We can move on to doing some more um, functional tests. So using biomechanics and shape analyses to try and really tease apart how these animals were using their limbs. And to do this stuff, we need 3D data. And this is really fun. We can capture 3D data in a few different ways. Um, Probably my favourite of which is CT scanning. So you might have had a CT scan, a CAT scan, um, the big round machine that you lay down in and you get these slices of imagery um, of internal anatomy. So what we can do is we can put fossils in there and visualise how they look, um, not only on the outside, but also on the inside. Um, Because when you're looking at bones, they are dynamic biomechanical tissues that change over time with the amount of weight that gets put on them or, or how they're used. So seeing the internal anatomy is really cool. And it's always really fun hanging around at the museum until after hours and bundling up the fossils in pillows and putting them on a trolley and trundling them across to the hospital. And the radiography staff are really great over there. And they're always excited to see what cool fossils we've brought them for the day. I can imagine a nice change for them, yeah. Yeah. So we do do CT scanning, um, also surface scanning using uh, a handheld scanner that takes basically zillions of photos and reconstructs them in 3D. And... What's really cool about gathering this 3D data is we can then do things like 3D print. So this is really good when you're working with fossils, particularly someone like me who wants to articulate them and kind of move them around. You know, how do these joints work? Um, Because you can't really do that with a fossil. You're going to grind it away and collection managers don't like you doing that kind of thing. So it's great to be able to 3D print them in a really robust material and you can actually start 
you know, tangibly holding these things and figuring out how they moved. The other cool thing is that when you have a 3D print, you can scale them. So a bone that is as big around as my arm and as long as my thigh, I can scale down to be the size of a pencil case and oh. take with me um, wherever I need to go. So I can take it to other museum collections, um, the kind of travel size to sh- compare with other material, or I can take it with me to conferences and, and sort of whip it out and show other scientists and start discussions about you know, this weird anatomy and have you ever seen anything like this? You know, what can you tell me? And it might just take one person who says, I've seen something very similar and then suddenly you've got a new line of inquiry. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I'm, I'm going to a conference next week that's going to be absolutely filled to the brim with paleontologists. So I'm going to hassle a few and see if they have any ideas about what this guy was doing. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like there is still a lot to learn, which is what we we love in science. Well, thank you very much and best of luck with that research. Thank you so much, Chris. That was paleontologist Hazel Richards. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. So, you know what a cyborg is? A cybernetic organism, I believe it is short for. Yeah, well, that's I guess that's the uh, the abbreviation that, that has come to be used, but it sort of gets used. It's it's a science fiction staple, has been for decades, of um, the idea of humans being enhanced with technology in some ways. And I guess we already kind of are, you know, we're very reliant on our phones and other bits of technology. I'm literally wearing glasses right now. Well, that that is an enhancement, yeah. Um, I guess it's not really cybernetic, though, is it? But you get things like the bionic ear and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, it's definitely yeah. a cybernetic thing. Um, but, I mean, you know, the appeal of it, to some people it's very appealing, to some people they think it's, you know, a bit scarier. But um, even though we are quite dependent on technology, we're basically mostly external objects, you know, we're like your glasses and a hearing aid and that sort of thing. Um, they're mostly things that we can, you know, wear and put on and uh, not really anything integrated, except we've, you know, there's um, artificial hearts and things like that, I suppose. Yep. So those things are there and people get pins in their bones and things like that. Hip implants. Hip replacements, yeah. Yep. Um, but again, that's still just using your own energy, I guess, mm. to, uh, you know, you're not. it doesn't make your hip... Better, it just replaces one that wasn't working properly. Um, so, talking implants, a while ago on the show, I talked about Elon Musk's plans for brain implants. Do you remember this oh, yeah, story? Vaguely, yeah. So, he's, he's intending to put brain implants hardwired into people's brains that will allow them to do all sorts of amazing things. You briefly told us in the introduction you weren't going to talk about Elon Musk. I said I wasn't talking about him going to space. Oh, okay. I wasn't, he wasn't talking about his intentions in space. This is the inner space of the right, mind. Right, right. Um, so, but he's saying he's going to put all these multiple controllers um, to manipulate machinery and things like that. But he was talking pretty long-term plans. He hasn't actually got anything 
up and running yet. Um, but in France, uh, a man who is known only as Tibalt, um, obviously he's a patient, so he's got to have some sort of uh, level of privacy, all those photos of him on the, on the internet and stuff like that. Um, he might be able to claim to be the first cyborg. Okay. Um, he has successfully controlled an exoskeleton, which helps him move around using only his thoughts. So there's no mechanical, physical controls. He's just controlling the exoskeleton with his mind, basically. Um, so Tibalt suffered an accident some years ago, which resulted in quadriplegia, meaning his the movement of his legs was not possible at all. Um, and he could only control very minor movements of his arms. So he was using a wheelchair, which was controlled by a uh, joystick, basically. But that was pretty much all he could do. Um with his limbs. Um, but he agreed to take part in a program which involved a, a quite a lot of training. So a couple of years of brain training to uh, learn how to control things with his mind on a computer. Um, and also various surgeries that he's had um, as well, which is basically how he's able to do that. So they've um, implanted um, sensors in his in his head, which can read his thoughts effectively and pass those on as instructions to other things. So um, the first thing they got him to do, he uh, had a computer-generated avatar, which he learned how to control with his mind. So he's basically just controlling this thing on a computer screen. Um, and they had to... Um, uh, train him how to do that and also learn what the individual, like what his actual thoughts meant so they could kind of translate it. So they had sort of a, an understanding of what he was thinking about and then they could translate it into motion in the computer-generated environment. Um, and then once he was able to control that, he graduated to the exoskeleton, which is uh, able to be attached to his body and allows him to control his arms and legs with robotic assistance. So they are all sort of mechanized movements that he can do by thinking about them okay. um, and he can actually move around. So the control mechanisms are described by the researchers as semi-invasive. They're not actually wired into his brain. They're sitting between his brain and the surface of his skin. So they're covered up, but they're not inside his head. Okay. So um, they're, they're, they're still outside the skull, are they? Or they're... I assume, I think they've actually had to remove sections of the skull okay. and they've replaced them with these sensors, which are sort of built in. Um, so, yeah, they sit slightly outside his brain. So, Tibalt had to train for two years uh, to allow the researchers to understand what, he's, what he was thinking about. And then he started controlling things as he progressed. The first part of the training was playing a game where he had to manoeuvre a virtual paddle to deflect a moving object. Basically, he was playing playing, playing a version yeah, of yeah, the video yeah. game Pong. And once he was able to do that, then they sort of advanced him up to different, uh, different tasks. Um, so he progressed onto tasks like operating a virtual switch with his mind. So he would switch this thing on and off by using his mind, which is, you know, the first step to being able to control a machine, mm. I guess. Yeah. Um, and also then he moved up to controlling the exoskeleton while it was just sort of sitting next to him. Like it wasn't right. attached, it wasn't attached to his body, but he could work out the controls and figure out how it would work. And then once he'd done that, 
um, they actually strapped the suit on him and uh, he was able to actually start moving around in the suit. So the suit itself theoretically allows 14 different ways for Tybalt to move his body and so far he's been able to use eight of those successfully. So right. there's more. He's got to level up in skills before he can use all of the capabilities of the suit. Okay. Um, I, think, I think I've seen things before with people using controlling wheelchairs and mm. stuff with their, with their mind. But this sounds like a, a different level of complexity because, you know, walking is a very complex thing. I'm assuming it's not like walking like a normal – It's if you like – it's more robotic. More robotic. Walking, yeah, it, yeah, lo- yeah, it looks like a, more like a robot moving okay. than like a person moving. Uh, but there are, as you say, there are much more complex um, tasks that he can do. It's not just one foot in front of the other. So he can walk, but he can also pick up objects and do things like rotate his wrists, which, if you think about it, is actually a really useful thing to be able to do is to turn your hand around and move it to pick things up and manipulate them around. If you couldn't do that, you would only just be able to lift things up and put them down again. And that's not really much help. When, you, know, so you can't drink a cup of coffee that way or something like that. Um, and he's also developing finer movements all the time. So he can now point to various specific places with either hand and both hands are getting better at using, you know, he can use his hands to do different things as well. Um, now the researchers have cautioned that their work is at a very very early stage they're not you know it's not going to be on the market soon or anything like that um and they but they have recruited three more patients to um participate in the exoskeleton uh project that they're working on um so they want to improve the exoskeleton as it is as well so as a piece of machinery it's very rudimentary i guess um they currently need to suspend it from the ceiling as extra support so the the patient can't actually hold themselves up in the exoskeleton at this point. Um, but if they can remove that requirement for it to be suspended, then obviously then they can move around wherever they want and be a bit more autonomous. At the moment, they're sort of, you know, it's more like a physiotherapy session than, than you know, just hanging around the house with an exoskeleton yeah. on. Um and at the moment, balance is still a big issue because it's obviously quite a heavy, bulky bit of machinery. So they want to um, make it lighter and less restrictive for the wearer so that um, they can have a bit more freedom of movement as well. So it's not, you know, it is still a very, very basic thing. But for someone who couldn't move any of their limbs to be able to walk around and pick things up and um, actually have a working uh, robotic exoskeleton. It's pretty amazing stuff that they can control with their mind. So there's no, you know, eventually I guess it'd be like muscle memory and driving a car. Mm. You'll just have to think about doing the things and you'll be able to do them. Um, but it's obviously, you know, it's a still a long way off the science fiction cyborgs from the cinema. Um, but the mind control machines are already here. And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love you to do so. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook. We are 
Lost in Science on 3CR called there. Um, or we on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. Or you can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you have the opportunity to give us a rating and review, please do so as it will make it easier for other people to find us. Or you can just listen to us on the radio same time every week when Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.